Welcome to the RCI podcast series. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Eddie Gutierrez on using NHF in unexpected respiratory compromise. The podcast is hosted slash moderated by Tim Morris. And now, here's Tim Morris. Hi, good morning. Uh, my name is Tim Morris. I'm a professor of medicine at, in the uh, pulmonary and critical care division at the University of California, San Diego. And I'm here representing the Respiratory Compromise Institute. The Respiratory Compromise Institute is focused on the proper care and treatment of people who are not quite in respiratory failure, but not stable either. And hence the, the phrase respiratory compromise, meaning, meaning that they're at major risk for developing life-threatening respiratory uh, failure. Uh, we recognize at the Institute that respiratory compromise can uh, come in a variety of different uh, conditions, um, such as the uh, impaired ability to control uh, breathing itself, impaired control of the airways, parenchymal lung disease, increased airway resistance, hydrostatic pulmonary edema, and then pulmonary vascular disease, which has its own set of pathologies uh, that can put people at risk. Uh, we're very interested in marshalling uh, a variety of, of resources to try to fight the, uh, the problems due to respiratory compromise and have uh, organized a, uh, a, a group of uh, representatives from various different uh, um, organizations having to do with respiratory health. Uh, today though, we have a special guest speaker, uh, Dr. Eddie Gutierrez, who is a critical care specialist. He is at a Baptist uh, Medical Center in Jacksonville in Baptist Clay uh, uh, Medical Campus. Dr. Gutierrez received his doctor of medicine from the University of Costa Rica in 2011. He did his residency at the Memorial University Medical Center in Savannah, Georgia in 2015 and finished his fellowship at Wake Forest University Baptist Medical Center in uh, 2017. Dr. Gutierrez also has a podcast called the Saving Lives Podcast, and I do recommend you take a listen to it. Uh, it's quite interesting. But today, Dr. Gutierrez is going to be speaking, with, be speaking with us about the proper care of patients with respiratory compromise using high flow oxygen. Dr. Gutierrez, it's great to have you here. First of all, I'd like to thank the Respiratory Compromise Institute as well as Dr. Tim Morris for having me here today. My name is Eddie Gutierrez. I'm an intensivist and thrilled to be joining you all to speak about the utilization of nasal high flow in patients who have unexpected respiratory compromise. Some Something I like to say about every time I go ahead and I lecture is that I try to use as much evidence-based medicine as possible, and uh, I like to make it accessible for people to see where I obtain these data from. And amongst that, on my actual slides at the bottom, I have the actual PubMed ID of every article that I cite and where I get this information from, because I like for people to be able to see where, where I got this from and actually check the data out for themselves. So I'm going to be discussing about the utilization of nasal high flow, also called high flow nasal cannula. I mean, it has a whole bunch of different initials in the literature. But one of the things that's very crucial for us all to know is the actual mechanism of action of the device. And many of us already have this, this device at our respective institutions with different uh, setups or whatnot. But the bottom line is that they have several components, including a flow meter. 
and some devices go up to 60 liters per minute. And one of the reasons why this flow is actually important, excuse me, as you just see how the normal respiratory drive actually takes place is that, you know, we tend to pull up to 35 liters of flow with uh, 35 liters with every breath that we take. And if you just go ahead and put somebody on, for example, four liters nasal cannula, you know, you don't get that 100% FiO2 that you desire from the actual device itself. It's obviously not, not, not its intended role. But when you do give these patients the amount of flow that they request, the amount of flow that they're trying to take in, and let's say you put them at, at 100% FiO2 and you give them that actual FiO2, well, that's what the patient is actually going to end up seeing. So with these devices, you can actually, utilizing the air oxygen blender, actually titrate the exact FiO2 more precisely that these patients are going to be receiving when they are on nasal high flow. Then in addition to that, there's other benefits such as the active humidifier, which keeps our cilia happy, lets us go ahead and expectorate things, and the heated circuit is actually good for comfort as well, also helps avoid bronchoconstriction in patients. And then last but definitely not least on this interface, you do have the actual nasal cannula itself, which allows patients to go ahead and speak, eat, interact with us. You know, we can talk to them while we're trying to get an HMP or do a console note on these patients. But all these things together help to increase the airway pressure of, of the patients and they help increase their end expiratory lung volume, which helps recruit lungs in these patients and also improve the lung compliance of them. This ultimately helps out with the oxygenation of the patient, you know, and cranking up the FiO2 also helps there as well. And these things, this improvement in the lung compliance helps decrease the respiratory drive of our patients and just decreases their respiratory rate. It also washes out dead space, and I'm going to get into a little bit more of the nitty-gritty of that component of all that a little bit later, but it does help decrease CO2 cl uh, clearance, excuse me, helps decrease the work of breathing of these patients as well as their respiratory effort. With the active humidity, it just makes it so much more comfortable for the patients. And there are different mechanisms, and you know, you go ahead and take a screenshot of this if you'd like, because I'm not going to go over this because it's going to, you know, bore you. Um, <clears throat> but there are all these different components help to make the make the device more comfortable, helps improve oxygenation, overall improve clinical outcomes in our patients. Now, one of the things that's most controversial that I hear a lot of discussions about is whether nasal high flow actually generates PEEP. And this is always very entertaining to me because, you know, by definition, PEEP needs to be a closed circuit. But, you know, we've kind of made estimations using different, different uh, clinical trials and different models where they have actually found using 30 to 50 liters of uh, liters of flow generates between three to five centimeters of water of PEEP. And they've actually created devices where they've been able to crank up greater than 10, uh, almost 100 liters of flow. And they found that for every increase of flow by 10 liters, you get about 1.16 centimeter of water of pressure. And then most recently, this is very up-to-date information, where in February 2023, they actually created a systematic review of meta-analysis looking at different flow rates on patients using different devices and whatnot. And they've actually found that the more you crank up the flow rate, the more airway pressure you end up generating in these patients. But the key question is, what about mouth breathers? Kind of like Joey right here, you're going to expect a decreased efficacy of the actual device in patients who are mouth breathing. And that is what's being seen in the data. You know, back in 2011, these data were published that, yeah, it shows that with the mouth closed, you do have this increase in airway pressure, but you do 
Although you do see some increase in airway pressure, it's definitely not the same when you have the mouth opened. And again, more recently, and I know that you can't read this slide, but it just shows you all the different devices and all the different pressures that they used to basically delineate the difference between the blue lines, which show the mouth being closed versus red being the mouth being opened. So just keep that in mind. But we have to remember that the whole thing about nasal high flow is bread and butter being acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. And I'm not going to get too much into this uh, case presentation, but you can kind of figure out what the diagnosis is, given that this is somebody who I took care of in January of 2020. And this patient showed up to the ED with, uh, with a viral illness, uh, which shall not be named. And the ED doctor called me very concerned because this was a chest x-ray upon presentation of the patient. And so the, the whole thing is the ER doctor wanted to go ahead and uh, intubate this patient, but I said, let's give her a go on nasal high flow and see how she does. And uh, this is on the 13th of, of January, just kept her on high flow. This is on the 22nd of January. In other words, uh, nine days had already passed and she still has these manifestations on her chest x-ray, which, you know, are very concerning. And uh, we've all seen this ourselves, but I just continued her on nasal high flow. She was eating, walking around her room, et cetera, et cetera. And even on the 31st of January, over two weeks after her presentation, her chest x-ray was starting to improve. But if you notice some things that are missing, she has no tracheostomy tube, there's no peg tube, there's no central line in place, which if the patient had been intubated by that point, well, chances are she would have bought herself a couple of those procedures. Even over a month later, she still had those uh, bilateral infiltrates, but again, she was not uh <clears throat> she was not requiring any procedures or any interventions and she ended up going home however if she would have been intubated at some point well then chances are she would have ended up in a in an LTAC or a nursing home which you know they do good work there from from a from a patient care standpoint however it's not the same as going home which she ultimately did but what gave me the clinical basis to actually do that was the florali trial that was published in 2015 in the New England Journal of Medicine where they randomized patients uh, with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure to either have non-invasive conventional oxygen therapy or nasal high flow to see how basically they did. And the primary outcome was intubation rates at 28 days, but there was no difference here. So I know what you're thinking. Hey, Eddie, why are you, share, why are you sharing this, these, excuse me, with these data with us if there's no difference in the outcomes of these patients? But what they found is that in the sicker, the sicker patients, the patients who have PF ratios less than 200, there was a, a superiority that was found in the patients on nasal high flow. They also found that these patients had decreased ICU mortality, decreased 90-day mortality, and overall they had more ventilator-free days using the high-flow nasal cannula as opposed to conventional oxygen therapy as well as non-invasive ventilation. And here is the Kaplan-Meier curve basically showing how the nasal high flow was superior to both non-invasive as well as standard oxygen therapy. Now, one of the things to consider about um, the patients enrolled in this trial and non-invasive ventilation is that they actually let these patients take tidal volumes that were ACCs per kilogram of ideal body weight and up, which is definitely not something that, that we've all been trained to take care of ARDS management. However, we have to be very cognizant when we care for these patients with you know, ARDS type pictures that they're not taking these monster tidal volumes when they actually breathe because you're actually causing them, uh, you're actually causing them body trauma and barrel trauma. So this has led the various, uh, various, um, societies to go ahead and state that there's a strong recommendation in patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure to go ahead and use the nasal high flow. 
In fact, even the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines most recently now in uh, 2021 state that, hey, they suggest using nasal high flow over non-invasive ventilation, even though it is a weak recommendation with low quality of evidence. And the European Respiratory Society also suggests using nasal high flow over non-invasive ventilation in patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. So it seems to be our go-to for right now. In fact, they're even trying to make modifications, which is beyond the scope of this particular talk, to the Berlin criteria to include utilizing nasal high flow as, a, as one of the characteristics of the definition of the, of the Berlin criteria. But what about COVID patients though, right? Because I, as much as I'm burnt out on COVID, just like everybody possibly listening to this webinar is burnt out on COVID, this is something that we just need to be prepared for in case it happens again. And in reality, that they found in this randomized control trial that was published in September of 2022 that there was no difference in mortality utilizing nasal high flow com compared to conventional oxygen therapy, which is kind of disappointing because, you know, we got to find every advantage we can for these patients. However, at the same time, they found that there was a decreased incidence of intubation in these patients with a number needed to treat of 12.5 when they use nasal high flow over conventional oxygen therapy. One of the things that we could also consider doing to give our patients an advantage is to go ahead and prone them on nasal high flow. And the data for this actually goes back to 2013 when they used healthy specimens, which were probably med students if we're being honest, and they had them uh, supine and prone and looked at their, looked uh, utilizing this technology called electrical impedance tomography. They looked at the end expiratory lung volume, and if you look over on the left, it's a, it's a more heterogeneous distribution compared to the right, which is more homogeneous, and the right are the patients who are on the nasal high flow. And then we've been seeing this utilization of proning these patients come up before uh, in other etiologies, but, you know, we really kicked it into high gear when it came to... Um, to COVID. But even the data from before that shows that it helps oxygenation when you prone these patients, but it ultimately there was no clear intubation benefit. But they did notify, uh, notice excuse me, a mortality benefit when the patients were prone for four hours or more per day. Looking at the subset of COVID patients, here they found that there was a decreased risk of intubation in a uh, very recent, from June of 2022, systematic review and meta-analysis, a decreased risk of intubation. But here also they found no mortality benefit. But those are just some things to consider. <clears throat> now, one of the things that I found very interesting when I was just reading everything under the sun to better take care of my COVID patients is... What if your patient cannot tolerate proning? There are a number of reasons which we all likely experience that patients would not prone themselves. And instead, you could try this particular maneuver, which, was, which is called the rodent's thinker. Now, I haven't particularly found any additional data looking at this, but from a uh, empiric standpoint, I did see certain patients' oxygenation improve when they took this position as opposed to just being sitting down on the bed. Now, I'm not going to tell you how to get this through risk management and, and through all the administrative loopholes because, you know, you don't want patients uh, falling, but definitely make sure you clear this appropriately before you start attempting it. <clears throat> Other indications that you could potentially use nasal high flow include patients who have heart failure, simply because of this increase in the airway pressures, this recruitment of the lungs, etc. They have found in various studies where Patients who have CHF exacerbations end up having a decrease in their respiratory rate if they have nasal high flow placed. In fact, even uh, certain European cardiology societies have high flow nasal cannula in their algorithm to manage patients with acute, heart, uh, acute hypoxemic respiratory failure from heart failure. 
and you know they want to avoid intubating the patients or whatnot. Obviously, it's not going to work on everybody, but it's it's a tool that we have in our back pocket to potentially help out our patients and also have them be a little bit more comfortable. Now, a study that was recently published in December of 2021, which I thought was pretty interesting, was this particular randomized control trial where they enrolled almost 200 patients to either have this helmet device, which we don't have available in the, in the United States, at least to my last knowledge, versus the nasal high flow in patients with uh, cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And as one would expect, at least those of us who have been familiarized with the functions of the helmet devices, well, you know, the helmet did help these patients more so than the nasal high flow, even at 50 liters. But there were some interesting findings that I'd like to share with you and why I brought this up to light. And it happened to be with how much these patients improved from their baseline to being transitioned over to the nasal high flow. And amongst these improvements include a decrease in their respiratory rate, their mean arterial pressure improved, their heart rate improved, their oxygenation improved, their PF ratio improved, as well as their dyspnea. So even though this device, the nasal high flow, is, was definitely not superior to using that helmet device, which obviously could provide these patients with more pressure, the patients still did have an improvement from baseline. And, you know, that was just something interesting I found and I wanted to share with you all today. What settings do they recommend starting patients with heart failure exacerbations? Well, start with an FiO2 of 100%, start them on 50 liters of flow, and then you go ahead and you titrate up as needed for your patient. You know, every patient is an individual and we need to titrate all their medications and therapies based on their, their particular needs. So let's stretch out a little bit and talk about the utilization of high flow nasal cannula and COPD because now we're stretching, right? But from a principal standpoint, we know that this does create some washout of, of, the, of the CO2 that's in the upper airways and such. And this particular schematic, you see how um, on 15, 30, and 45 liters, the more flow you provide the patients, the more there is a washout of this, of this reagent that they were using to you know, show this model. And even utilizing uh, actual humans in this type of uh, this type of MRI technology, they found that turning on the nasal high flow actually does wash out the upper airways from CO2 in our in in patients. And the whole thought process is that this this uh, washout of the CO2 decreases the work of breathing of the patients, further decreases CO2 production, and therefore decreases the ventilation needs of our patients. There have been studies that have been performed within the last five years that show that there's a percentage decrease in CO2 by actually giving them even 20 liters of flow showed about 9% decrease in their, in their baseline CO2 and uh, 30 liters of flow, it decreased it by 12.6%. So there is some data out there to support this. And looking now at that, uh, that systematic review and uh, meta-analysis just a little while ago that I, that I shared with you that was published just uh now in February of 2023, they looked at these different devices and you see that as you go increasing the actual flow, which is on the x-axis, you do see a uh, percentage change in the patient's CO2. So the more flow you can provide your patients, you know, better if they keep their mouth closed, of course, you do ventilate your patient better with, with these devices. And they've tried to look retrospectively at patient populations with a pH of 7.5, excuse me, 7.25 to 7.35. I, I, I would never think that 
that putting high flow on a patient who has a uh, PCO2 of over 100 with a pH 6.9 will ever be efficacious to, to be able to get the patient out of the hole that they're in. But the sweet spot might be, at least for the time being, of 7.25 to 7.35. And retrospectively, they found in this particular study uh, that was published in 2019 that these patients, although there was no difference in treatment failure, well, again, comparing them, excuse me, to non-invasive inhalation versus high flow, they found that there was no difference in treatment failure in PACO2 nor length of stay. What they did find is that there was less interventions by the respiratory therapists as well as the nurses because, you know, all of us who take care of patients on non-invasive, they're trying to like move the mask around, they're trying to eat around it, they're trying to talk to you, etc. And so, you know, that, that's just messing around with the, with the device. There was also less facial and skin breakdown in these patients, which, you know, is beneficial for them. We don't want to cause any pressure ulcers and such on our patients. But they did find curiously that there was a longer duration of the device with the application of the nasal high flow. And it's my opinion that a confounder for that is the fact that patients, even though they are on uh, nasal high flow, they're still more comfortable with it and they can still eat, they can still drink, they can still communicate with their families. And so they don't, they're not bugging the nursing staff and, and the respiratory therapist to go ahead and have the mask removed. So that might be a confounder there. A uh, more recent randomized control trial of almost 80 patients. Again, small studies for right now. I mean, that's just, that's just what we have. I'll show you what's coming up in the pipeline, though. Looked at nasal high flow versus non-invasive ventilation. And here, again, they were using a pH of 7.5, excuse me, 7.25 to 7.35 with a baseline mean PaCO2 of 73. And what they were looking at was the difference in uh, the PaCO2. And they found that in reality, there was only a small difference between the non-invasive ventilation as well as the high flow in the PaCO2 of these patients. Also interesting is that they did not find an increase in the need for invasive mechanical ventilation. So here, by testing out the patients, at least on the nasal high flow, it did not lead them to needing to be intubated. Unfortunately, you know, 32.5% of patients still went on to need non-invasive ventilation, so it didn't work for absolutely everybody. But along the same lines, 60% of patients did just fine on the nasal high flow and did not need to wear the non-invasive mask. They have tried to do systematic reviews and meta-analyses with the current data that we have on uh, COPD exacerbations and high-flow nasal cannula, but if I'm being quite honest, they're all very small, underpowered, not, uh, not very robust. And even, even in these cases, they have shown no difference in intubation rates, no difference in mortality. But thankfully, there are a number of authors uh, and researchers and clinicians out there who are currently enrolling patients and recruiting to try to see if they could tease out which, which, which ways we could use nasal high flow in patients with COPD exacerbations. Algorithms exist already for the utilization of nasal high flow in, in COPD exacerbations. And, you know, this is, this is the algorithm that I've run into the most, which basically says if your patient has COPD and they need to be intubated, well, go ahead and intubate them. No, no need to waste time. And obviously, uh, if they're on nasal high flow and, you know, they're not, they're not flying, just keep it on them for pre-oxygenation. And then you just crank that bad boy up so that you can oxygenate the patient the best way possible. But if they're not... If they're not needing to be intubated emergently, then you give them oxygen, you give them NEBS, steroids, etc. Um, and, you know, if the pH is less than 7.25, you just go ahead and you put them on non-invasive ventilation. 
you want to have you want to maximize your chances of success but if your ph is 7.25 7.35 that's when you start the patient on nasal high flow flow rate between 50 to 60 liters and whatever fio2 needed to hit that sat goal of 88 percent but one of the key features here is to set the temperature at 37 degrees there's a tendency amongst respiratory therapists to just start these patients on 31 degrees for the sake of you know the, the patient's not moaning about the about the actual air being too being too hot um they talk about utilizing the the nebulizer with nasal high flow but i'm gonna go ahead and skip that and you just keep on assessing your patients to see if they're gonna fly obviously if they're desatting if they're if their breathing patterns look awful if they're tachypnic etc their acidosis is getting worse well you gotta bail you gotta either put them on non-invasive or you have to go ahead and intubate them so th those are going to be your exit strategies. But if they're doing okay, you continue to titrate, continue to monitor your patients, et cetera, and you'll eventually wean it once, once they get better. Asthma is another place where people have considered using nasal high flow. However, these studies have been very small, not very robust at all. What they have shown is a decrease in respiratory rate. Although people are using it in clinical practice for asthma exacerbations, it's not something that's very substantially, uh, very substantially, validated so to speak in in the literature today <clears throat> but one of the things that people have issues with with the nasal high flow is the fact that they feel like they're flying blind when we have patients on invasive mechanical ventilation you know we can look at the screen look at the waveforms look at everything and we know what's going on with the patients same thing with the with non-invasive ventilation it reassures us to be able to watch the patient's respiratory rate but with the nasal high flow you know at this point uh where we stand right now in 2023 Eh, we're kind of flying blind, it feels like. And this is where the ROCKS index comes into play. And the ROCKS index is a calculation that is SpO2 over the FiO2. You know, you take those two and then you divide it by the respiratory rate. So when you go ahead and enter this into your calculator, because I'm not, at least I'm not impressive enough to be able to do this in my head, you have to enter the SpO2 as a whole number then the FiO2 actually needs to go ahead and uh, include the decimal. And the respiratory rate needs to be accurate on these patients. And this sometimes makes you, forces you, so to speak, to be a little bit creepy because you have to kind of watch the patient as they breathe. You can't just use that 20 that's documented all over the place or 18 or, you know, you choose your number. You actually have to see how fast these patients are breathing so that you maximize your chances of this actual calculation being beneficial. But there are also calculators so that, you know, you don't have to do that on a piece of paper. Uh, there are also calculators that exist that, <clears throat> excuse me, where, where you could enter these numbers and they'll calculate the ROCKS index for you. But the question is, how accurately does the ROCKS actually predict nasal high flow failure? Because people always think, oh, yeah, if I just look at the respiratory rate or whatnot, or, you know, I could, I could tell if they're going to do well or not. Well, it turns out that we're not as good as we think we are when it comes to this. And they've looked at the diagnostic accuracy of different respiratory variables in this particular paper that was published in 2016. And they found that at 12 hours, 18 hours, and 24 hours, the area under the receiver operating curve of the ROCKS index compared to these other metrics which we use was superior. Now, for those people who are a little bit rusty at statistics, uh, when you're looking at receiver operating curve, if it's basically between 0.8 and 0.9, as this was at 18 and 24 hours, it's considered to be excellent. So something to keep in mind. So which ROCKS index, you know, you go ahead and you get your number, you calculate it, et cetera. Which ROCKS index actually goes ahead and predicts a decreased risk of intubation? And that number is 
If the ROX index is greater than 4.88 after 12 hours, the patient has a decreased risk of needing invasive mechanical ventilation. And that number actually carries forward to 2.6 as well as the aforementioned 12 hours. Predictors of ROX failure, however, is that if the ROX index is less than 2.85 uh, within two hours, well, patient likely needs to be intubated. If it's less than 3.47 at six hours, that patient needs the tube. And if at 12 hours it's less than 3.85, well, this patient likely needs to be intubated because the high flow is not going to cut it. But I know that these numbers right now, like that 4.88 and all that stuff, just sound pretty abstract right now. So I'm going to take it. I'm going to take a moment to go ahead and show you what it'll look like in clinical practice. So here, for example, somebody who has a ROX index of 9.5, for example, is somebody who's setting 95% on 50% of IO2 and breathing just 20 times per minute. That patient's going to fly and do well. Now, somebody setting 95% on 90% FIO2, which is still concerning, you know, but has a respiratory rate of, of 21, well, their ROX index is also doing okay. There exist nomograms of sorts or, or tables such as this one, which you could screenshot right now. So you can save it and put it in your back pocket or put it on your phone. Just make sure you take my little face out of the lower right corner. And you can see how, how depending on the FiO2 and the respiratory rate of the patient, where the patient's safe zone is or you know where, where you could be a little bit more comfortable with how they're doing. Now, <clears throat> people who aren't going to fly include these pa this patient who has a ROX index of 2.79, who's setting 92% on 100% FiO2, but breathing 33 times per minute. That patient's not going to do well. An example of somebody who is also not going to do well, somebody who's setting 92% on 90% FiO2, but breathing 30 times a minute at six hours. This per person's not going to fly either. Uh, there are tables such as this one, which uh, I have it as, I had it, um, until I had the whole rocks index memorized, I had it on my phone as one of the images on my favorites, but basically says how to decide management on the patient depending on the rocks index. So this is pretty convenient. There are also algorithms that uh, I've seen ER doctors carry around in the past where you make adjustments to the actual device itself, whether it is to increase the flow um, or increase the FiO2, and then just go ahead and reassess the patient. An example of that is, you know, somebody who's kind of in the gray zone between 2.85 and 4.87 is listed there. You increase support and then you calculate a delta rocks. And if the delta rocks is greater than 0.5, then, you know, you continue monitoring them. But if it's less than 0.5, you should really consider intubating the patient. Is there anything else that we could do to nasal high flow to actually improve outcomes in these patients? Uh, COVID made us kind of desperate when it came to patient management and trying new things, which um, it's, it's just the way it was. Some folks tried nitric oxide, and these data are from the Cleveland Clinic, where they actually had the nitric oxide system hooked up to the, to the nasal high flow. And, you know, they, they tried to keep patients off of invasive mechanical ventilation like that. Uh, other institutions went ahead and tried epoprostenol uh, and high flow nasal cannula to try to avoid the ventilation, the mechanical ventilation. Obviously, our patients did not have smiles on their faces like this young lady does in this particular image. But um, but yeah, this was something that we we tried at our institution. We actually tried both of them to see if they would improve outcomes. One other, one other way that we could use uh, nasal high flow, and I use it quite frequently, is in the post-extubation period. You know, when we go ahead and uh, try to extubate patients as soon as possible, we could obviously bring patients into two different groups, such as low-risk and high-risk. In this low-risk study, they randomized patients to either be placed on nasal high flow 
or uh, conventional oxygen therapy. And what they found is that for, with regards to all-cause reintubation, it was beneficial to be placed on high-flow nasal cannula over conventional oxygen therapy with the number needed to treat to avoid one reintubation of being 13.7. But what about high-risk patients? And here they randomized patients to, be, to receive either non-invasive ventilation or the high-flow nasal cannula. But all in all, in this paper, they found that there was no difference between the two, between the non-invasive ventilation and the conventional, and the, excuse me, high-flow nasal cannula. But there was no difference in all-cause reintubation. There was no cause in post no difference in uh, post-extubation respiratory failure. But one thing that they did find is that there were more adverse effects in the patients with non-invasive ventilation, you know, like the pressure wounds and things of that nature. So that's just something to consider because there were no adverse effects noted in the patients who were on the high-flow nasal cannula. So it's a, it's, a, it's a conditional recommendation to use the nasal high flow after extubation. You know, every patient is different. We all know uh, for, for our patients that we're caring for the exact etiology that made them go into respiratory failure. So, you know, we can kind of deduce which, which device is going to be better for them. <clears throat> We've also looked at using postoperative high flow nasal cannula in obese patients or, uh, or patients who go through cardiac and thoracic surgery. And there's a clinical recommendation to use high flow in these patients because they do benefit to some degree from the, from the actual um, airway pressures provided by, the, provided by the device. What they have found in this more recent uh, systematic review and meta-analysis looking at the utilization of high flow nasal cannula in the post-operative period is that it does decrease the risk for reintubation when they looked at over 2,000 patients uh, who were at risk for, for uh, reintubation. It also decreased the risk of escalation of care, so another benefit here. One of, the, one of the topics where I, I was hoping that uh, nasal high flow would be more beneficial would be in the peri-intubation period, where uh, you basically have the nasal high flow on the patient, and then you go ahead and secure the airway, and uh, then you take it off after the, the endotracheal tube is in place. But the data hasn't really shown any benefits here. Uh, so what I do in clinical practice is that if my patient's on nasal high flow, I just leave it on them and I, excuse me, go ahead and intubate them in that fashion. If they have the non-invasive inhalation on their face, well, then I pre-oxygenate them with that. Or if they have a non-rebreather, I just leave that and I intubate them like that. But I don't go ahead and start switching devices just for just for the airway. Uh, di- different different academic centers or depending on who does the intubations at your institution, you might consider a different practice, but, you know, for the sake of uh, evidence-based medicine and trials, there have been no, it hasn't shown any differences. So also no differences in peri-intubation complications. So there's no recommendation to actually use uh, nasal high flow in these patients, you know, just to put them on them, just to just go ahead and intubate them. Now, last but not least, it can all be like just easy stuff. There have to be some complications, correct? And this is where... Uh, the complications that have been listed have been, you know, kind of kind of insignificant, to be honest with you, because what has been reported is just patients feeling hot from the actual temperature or some thoracic or cervical discomfort. And then some people have complained about unpleasant smell or the temperature being too warm or having some sort of chest discomfort. So these are all different things that, uh, that have been seen in the utilization of nasal high flow. And um, definitely think it's a it's a cool technology it's worth worth exploring if you haven't been doing so yet. Uh, it's been something that I've been actually working with since about 2014, 2013 or so. So 
um, I have a good amount of experience with it. I've enjoyed working with it and uh, definitely have to thank everybody for watching this uh, webinar and definitely I'm going to be open to any questions, comments, complaints, concerns. And uh, thank you all for, for tuning in and for listening to me go off about this for a little while. Well, thank you, Dr. Gutierrez, for a great presentation. We got a few questions uh, from the webinar. Uh, so the first question is, are there specific surgical procedures that may lead to respiratory compromise? Well, this is a good question because there are so many different surgical procedures that are done. You know, I have quite a bit of experience in surgical ICU as well as um, cardiothoracic ICU, which is what I do a lot of today. And when it comes to patients who are in the cardiothoracic ICU, for example, there is good evidence for the utilization of high flow, for example, in patients who need to be extubated within those six hours, uh, those magical six hours or even the 24 hours after cardiac surgery. But those patients who are might need a little bit better oxygenation, might need some uh, increased airway pressures, that PEEP-like effect that I just mentioned before, um, th that might be seen in a lot of patients who are, for example, suffering from obesity and things of that nature. Then there's also data in patients who undergo bariatric surgeries. And we just got to think about these patients who are a little bit on the heavier set side and they tend to you know, have history of uh, obstructive, obstructive sleep apnea, for example, and they just might need a little bit of positive pressure. And the high flow nasal cannula system could go ahead and provide that for the patients to avoid them escalating to either needing non-invasive ventilation or needing to be intubated, which is what we really, really try hard to avoid to do with these patients. Next question, are there hospitals allowing the patient to be on humidified high flow beyond the ICU or transitional carrier? areas? Unfortunately, during the recent pandemic, we've all had to kind of go a little bit beyond our comfort zones. I know of many institutions that used to only have the high flow systems in their intensive care units, but that went ahead and got trickled down to the PCU units or IMC or whatever you call your step down unit at your respective institution. But this actually led the pandemic, unfortunately, um, led the high flow systems to be utilized in sometimes some med surge telefloors, which, you know, is beyond the scope of comfort for a lot of nursing staff as well as respiratory therapists. But, you know, with this need came the ingenuity to be able to do it and people stepped up their game and definitely got trained for it. But nonetheless, this, these systems are used quite frequently outside of the ICU, like I said, in the step-down units, but also I see it quite frequently in the emergency department where you know patients with unexpected or unexplained acute hypoxemic respiratory failure and you know just a regular nasal cannula is not cutting it, they just get the high-flow system placed on them until they're able to find out the etiology and, and transition the patient over. But in addition to that, PACUs are using it um, and it's just something that, that is is being used more and more throughout the different hospital systems. Okay, next question. Uh, what are some comorbidities or medical history items that I should be more alert to as it relates to potential respiratory compromise? So this is kind of a big question because when we interview our patients, we definitely take a good medical history and, you know, uh, Patients with recurrent pneumonias, for example, history of aspiration, those patients who have had like a CVA with recurrent uh, aspiration, pneumonias, et cetera, they, might, they, they will likely benefit for, from being on the high flow nasal cannula system during the course of their pneumonia. But 
you know, actually COVID, as I mentioned before, a lot of people ended up using it for that. From a medical, from a past medical history, comorbidity type of thing, you know, I always, I always get cautious or my alarm goes off, so to speak, with the patients who have obstructive sleep apnea and obesity hypoventilation syndrome. And the reason for that is because we could try really hard to go ahead and put their home CPAP on them or put non-invasive on them while they sleep. But the reality is a lot of these patients, since they're ill, they just fall asleep at all times. Um, and this is just something that that becomes quite tedious for the personnel to have to go and run and put the put the put the non-invasive on them and then this at the other but if you just have them on the heated high flow and then you know have them with some positive pressure being delivered to the patient then they might fall asleep and they won't become hypercapnic in the interval so that's just something i i, I try to keep in mind uh I, I really can't think of anything off the top of my head but um we just have to be aware of that people could be resuscitated for their septic shock and you know, even though we're giving patients a lot less fluid these days and not putting that many patients into pulmonary edema, it's still something that's taking place. And, you know, for this increased work of breathing or whatnot, uh, this is something where the surviving sepsis guidelines is actually recommending the utilization of the high flow nasal cannula over non-invasive ventilation. But again, that's a different, different population. Another question is, is COPD a contraindication for the use of humidified high flow? Absolutely not. COPD is not a contraindication for this. As a matter of fact, I showed a, sub a substantial amount of data, even though it's not robust, high quality, it's not a randomized controlled trial of 800 patients, that, that's all on the back burner, or not in the back burner, but that's something that's going to be mentioned or uh, studied soon. But we do have good data to support the utilization of high flow nasal cannula in patients with COPD, especially those with a pH between 7.25 to 7.35. This is something that I do routinely in my practice and something that you consider doing as well. Now the question, should we turn the temperature of the humidified high flow down for these types of patients? Again, in the, C the COPD patient population with COPD exacerbations, the temperature of up to 37 degrees Celsius that we provide these patients is actually helpful to them. It's not deleterious at all. You should not consider t turning it down. Sure, there are going to be a minority of patients who do not tolerate that temperature, and therefore you may, may have to bring it down a little bit. But for the most part, try to keep these patients at 37 degrees Celsius. The reason for this is we have to remember that this warm air actually bronchodilates these patients who need it so badly. So putting them on oxygen that's cold oxygen is just going to cause bronchoconstriction and they're not going to have a good time. Again, these patients are struggling to breathe. We want to do whatever we can to get rid of that obstruction and help them get over their COPD exacerbation. Okay, and the final question, what are some benefits of humidified high flow of a patient is requiring a small amount of oxygen? We have to keep in mind that using high flows, not just for patients who have this hypoxia where they need, you know, 100% of FiO2 to be delivered to these patients. It's a good question because a lot of folks don't quite understand and um, it's, it's, it's tough to explain that airway pressure that I explained in the, earlier in the presentation, but some patients just need a little bit of alveolar recruitment for atelectasis, uh, for, you know, other 
other issues where the FiO2 doesn't need to be so high, but what they do need is some of that positive pressure to recruit those alveoli. And again, I just alluded to the patients with underlying morbid obesity or bariatric surgeries, for example, where they just need a little bit of airway pressure, not necessarily FiO2, but a little bit of airway pressure to help these patients ventilate a little bit better. And yeah, the, the, you know, the first times that you go ahead and speak with your RT colleagues and say, hey, I want this patient on 30% FiO2, for example, but let's try them on high flow on 50 liters or 60 liters of flow just because I need a little bit of that positive pressure. Sometimes it takes a little bit of explaining of the mechanism of action of the device in order to convince them that, hey, this is something that makes sense and this is something that could be beneficial to the patients. Now, I know that we have a lot more questions that are showing up, but we don't have enough time to get to them. But if you leave your comments down below, uh, we will provide show notes of sorts to allow these questions to be answered, and we should have these up for you in about two weeks or so. So thanks so much for tuning into our conference. I definitely appreciate your uh, attention and hopefully you all learned something here from something here today and uh, definitely thank you for doc, to Dr. Morris and and the RCI team for having me on this particular webinar as it's been a lot of fun for me and hopefully it's been something that it has been beneficial or will be beneficial to you your practice and most of all your patients because that's that's who we're here to take care of thanks so much and thank you very much Dr. Gutierrez it's been a pleasure thanks for listening if you're interested in learning more about respiratory compromise, please sign up to receive our newsletters at respiratorycompromise.org. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash respiratorycompromise. And subscribe to us on your favorite podcast channel, such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify.